Chapter 7 of American Leaders and Heroes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. American Leaders and Heroes by Wilbur F. Gordy. Chapter 7 Roger Williams and the Puritans, 1599 to 1683. For years after the landing of the Pilgrims at Plymouth in 1620, their number grew so slowly that by 1630 the population was only 300. After that year they began to increase more rapidly, by reason of neighboring settlements made by the Puritans at various places on the Massachusetts coast. We have already seen that the Puritans in England were dissatisfied with the English church, and that they wished to purify some of its forms and beliefs. But they did not succeed in their purpose, because the Stuart kings of England, James I and Charles I, bitterly opposed the Puritan movement. For a long time, the Puritans held their meetings secretly in such out-of-the-way places as private houses and barns. At length, encouraged by the success of the pilgrims at Plymouth, they decided to leave their homes in Old England and try to form a New England across the Atlantic. These Puritans were not, like the pilgrims, poor men of little influence, for some of them had been educated at Oxford or Cambridge, some were wealthy, and some were connected with distinguished families. All were of sterling character, ready to undergo hardship for the sake of their religion. In 1628, therefore, some of the leading Puritans formed a trading company and, having bought a tract of land in America from the Plymouth Company, sent out settlers to occupy it. The first settlement was at Salem with Endicott as leader. Two years later, eleven vessels sailed with nearly 1,000 Puritans, bringing with them horses, cattle, and stores of various kinds. They located at Boston, Dorchester, Charlestown, and other towns near Boston. John Winthrop, their leader, was the first governor. Each of these settlements constituted a township, which usually included an area of from 40 to 60 square miles. Within this tract, settlers lived in villages, in the center of which stood their meeting house, used not only for a place of worship, but for all kinds of public meetings. Near the meeting house stood the blockhouse. This was a rude, strongly built structure, where the people of the village could take refuge in case of attack from Indians. Extending through each village was a long street, and on either side of it stood the settlers' dwellings with their small farms stretching back in the rear. These dwellings, which in early years were only log huts, afterward gave place to high-roofed frame houses. All were simple, solid, and neat. Upon entering one of these early Puritan homes, we should find two principal rooms, the best room and the kitchen. In the kitchen, the thing of special interest to us would be the fireplace, large enough for a back log five or six feet long and two or three feet thick. In this great fireplace, a Puritan housewife could roast an entire sheep. As stoves were unknown in these olden days, all cooking was done at this open fire, and it was by such firesides that the Puritan girls and boys used to spend long winter evenings. While the logs blazed, the mother and daughters would knit, or spin, or quilt, and the father would read his Bible or smoke his pipe. At this family hearth there was also much good cheer in cider drinking, nut cracking, and storytelling, especially when the family was fortunate enough to have a stranger present as a guest. At such times, the children were always good listeners. But much as it was prized, a visit from a stranger was a rare occurrence, for as there were no carriages or public conveyances of any kind, long journeys were seldom made. When traveling by land, the settlers sometimes went on foot and sometimes on horseback. In the latter case, the men sat in front and the women on a pillion behind. For carrying supplies, sleds were used in winter and ox carts in summer. Since travel was so difficult, there was very little communication between distant villages unless they happened to touch upon the sea. But frequently this was not the case, for many of the settlements, following the courses of rivers, extended inland rather than along the coast. When a stranger did appear, however, he was always welcome, for he was sure to bring some bit of news from the world outside. 
Perhaps, if he had traveled through the woods, he might tell of some dangerous adventure with wild beasts or Indians. If in midwinter he dared to make the journey, he might tell how he spent a cold night in some deserted wigwam, into which he had been driven by howling wolves. Such thrilling chapters from the book of everyday life were of special interest to people whose experience was very narrow and monotonous, for in those days there were no newspapers and few books. We should make a great mistake, however, were we to imagine that the Puritans did not value books and reading. They appreciated reading and education so much that in every town was required to have a school. As a consequence of this excellent system, there were very few people who could not read and write. The study of the Bible was an important feature in all this school training, and absorbed much of the thought of the Puritan mind, especially on the Sabbath. The Puritan Sabbath, which began at sunset on Saturday and ended at sunset on Sunday, was largely given up to church worship. All work and travel, not absolutely necessary, were suspended, and no playing on a musical instrument was allowed. Two instances will illustrate the severity of the Puritan ideas of Sabbath observation. The first is that of two lovers, who were brought to trial because they were seen sitting together on the Lord's Day under an apple tree. The second tells of a Boston sea captain who was put into the public stocks for two hours because he kissed his wife on the Sabbath day upon the doorstep of his house. He had just returned after a two years' absence on a sea voyage. In all this strictness about Sabbath observance, the Puritans were wholly sincere. To them, purity of religion was the supreme interest of life. They had left their old homes in England that they might worship according to their own belief in a community under the control of Puritan ideas. But it was no easy matter for them to arrange the affairs of church and state just as they wished, even in this new Puritan commonwealth, for they found some of the settlers unwilling to believe and act in accordance with Puritan ideas of right and wrong. One of these troublesome persons was a young man who came with his bride to Salem in 1631. This young man was Roger Williams. He was born in England in 1599. An Englishman of influence secured for the clever lad a scholarship in the Charterhouse School, from which young Roger later went to Cambridge University. Having become a Puritan, Roger Williams, like so many others of his faith, found it wise to leave England. He came to America in order that he might escape religious persecution and enjoy religious freedom. On reaching New England, he went to Salem and was there appointed a minister of the church. After a very short time, he left Salem and went with his family to Plymouth. Remaining there for two years, he became deeply interested in the Indians and began the difficult task of learning their language. He wrote afterward, God was pleased to give me a painful, patient spirit to lodge with them in their filthy, smoky holes to gain their tongue. In this way, he acquired a good knowledge of the Indians, whom he learned to love and who learned to love him. Little did he realize that their warm friendship would, in years after, save not only his own life, but also the lives of many other Puritans. While winning the friendship of the Indians, Roger Williams incensed the Puritans by saying in strong language that they had no just claim to the lands they were living on. He said that the king had no right to grant any company these lands because they had never belonged to him. The Indians, and only the Indians, owned them. It is needless to say that such arguments made many bitter enemies for the youthful preacher. Of course, he could not continue with this severe criticism of matters so important to the Puritan heart without losing many of his friends. The wrath of the Puritans at length became so great that they tried him in court and banished him from Massachusetts. As he became ill about this time, however, he was told that he might remain in the colony through the winter if he would not preach. But as soon as he grew better, his friends, who were very fond of him, began to spend much time in talking with him at his home in Salem, where he now lived. The Puritans, fearing his influence, determined to send him at once to England. When the heroic young minister heard of this, he hastily said goodbye to his wife and two children, one of whom was a little girl two years old, and the other a baby, and looked for safety in the home of his old friend Massasoit, living near Mount Hope, seventy or eighty miles away. The outlook was dreary enough. It was the midwinter, January 1636, and the snow was lying deep upon the ground. 
As there was no road cut through the forest, Roger Williams had to depend upon his compass for a guide. To keep himself from freezing, he carried with him a hatchet to chop kindling wood and a flint and steel to kindle it into a flame. Thus fitted out, he started, though still weak from his recent illness, with a staff in his hand and a pack on his back, to look for his dusky friend Massasoit. This long journey in the bitter weather of a New England winter was indeed a trying experience to the lonely traveler. He wrote long afterward, Steering my course in winter snow, I was sorely tossed for one fourteen weeks in a bitter winter season, not knowing what bed or bread did mean. Having found Massasoit, he spent much of the winter in the wigwam kindly furnished him by the Indian chief. In the spring, he began to erect buildings at Seekonk on land given to him by the Indians. But his friend, Governor Winthrop, having secretly sent him word that Seekonk was in the territory belonging to the Massachusetts colony, he decided to go elsewhere. Accordingly, he and five of his friends rode down the river and, landing at a place pointed out by the Indians as having a spring of good water, made a settlement, which they called Providence, in token of God's watchful care over them. This was the beginning of Rhode Island, a colony where all men, whatever their religious belief might be, were welcome. Men who had been persecuted elsewhere on account of their religion were glad to go to Rhode Island, where they were allowed to worship as they pleased, and thus it soon grew to be a prosperous settlement. Roger Williams was a man of pure and noble soul. He did not seem to bear any grudge against the people of Massachusetts. For when, in 1637, the Pequots tried to get the Narragansett Indians to join them in a general uprising against the whites, and especially against those living in Massachusetts, he did all he could to frustrate their plans. At this time, he set out one stormy day in his canoe to visit Canonicus, chief of the Narragansetts, and succeeded, at the risk of his life, in preventing the union of the two tribes against the whites. He died in 1683 at the age of 84 years. Although his judgment was not always wise, his motives were upright. In his struggle with the Puritans, he was ahead of his age, which was not yet ready for such advanced ideas of religious toleration. End of chapter 7. Recording by Tatiana Chichilla, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania.